Everyone gets to hear microphone tests, though, while we're going. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to Unsafe Space and our kind of monthly book club, although we're not great about making it actually monthly. So it's monthly by Carrie's standards, which is like, eh, we're late by a couple weeks. Um, but uh, this, this month, we are doing Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, which is quite a tome. Carrie needed uh, some time off. Carrie is apologizes to everyone she can't be here but we have the next best thing which is beverly beverly say hello hi i'm the next best thing (laughs) (laughs) yeah sometimes we we beverly you can confirm this we had a company meeting the other day and i admitted i'm a little bit asperger's so i don't always say I apologize. Beverly is the best. My daughter happens to be in, madly in love with Beverly. Yeah, uh, I heard about this. Yeah, she thinks, <laughs> every time I mention anything about you, she's like, how is she so awesome? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, welcome everyone to, to Book Club. Um, we've got 11 people in now. Not everyone has video, but a lot of them do. A lot of people do. Uh, and should we do... I don't know if we should do a gallery view. I don't actually know if, if people on YouTube see my view or they all see the gallery view. I don't know what it is. But let's kick it off. I've read this book several times. It's been about 10 Wait, years probably. Carter, probably. I don't, are you sure we're live? Because it, it still shows that it's waiting online. Really? I think chat's saying so too. Chat says it's waiting? Zoom says we're live. Uh, let's see. I'll go. Waiting for unsafe space. It does say waiting. That's very weird. Well, I guess we have to do that all over again. Cool. Uh, I'll be second. I'll be second fiddle again. Yeah, I'm confused though. I hate Zoom so much. (laughs) How are we? We must be live somewhere because we're live on YouTube somewhere. So. Let's see. Maybe it just created a new stream for no reason. Probably. Uh, yep, we are live. We're just, it created a stream in the wrong spot. I really uh. hate Zoom with a passion. Uh, let me tell everyone in chat. So we are live. So everyone gets to watch this debacle. Hey, all. Carter types so fast. All right. So everyone has the new link. I'll pull up the new chat, which is here. There I am. So we are, in fact, live. All right. Sorry about that, everyone. But it is what it is. All right. Now can we talk about the book? Are we good now, Beverly? Do you think we're good? I think so. All right. I haven't read this book in uh, in a while. It's been like probably, I don't know, between eight and ten years. So I reread it. Uh, but I, I'm, I actually don't know that I'm the right person to totally lead a discussion on this because I know it 
so well and I was in the objectivist community for so long that sometimes I don't know if like I understand her philosophy. I know that I understand her philosophy deeper than what's in the book. So sometimes I read things into the book that other people don't see. And so the book, it says something slightly different to people than what I'm getting. Um, but with that said, maybe we should just kick it off and get like this was uh, we've read now 1984, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, all kind of dystopian future novels. And uh, I think they each had something right and something wrong uh, that they, they got right and something they got wrong about what the future would be like. And I'm just curious, kind of open it up. What do you guys think? Uh, is anything right about this? And, and then and then what did she miss? No comments. Uh, Beverly. This is Tamara. One of the things I realized, she grew up and escaped from Soviet Russia, and she observed that society. And her characters do the same thing that she essentially did of run away from society. When you look at the Soviet Union, a lot of the high producers some fled and a lot just said blanket i'm just gonna put in the bare minimum because you took away my farm i'm gonna do the basics keep my head down be a good communist and do the minimum and in our society as you've seen the medicaid reimbursements go down medicare reimbursements go down people go okay i'm gonna retire early or i'm just gonna do part-time she ignores the fact that a lot of people will downshift on their productivity because they no longer get an incentive instead of abandon society and then go be a genius in the wilderness. And the other thing she gets wrong, yes, yeah. I know a lot of high-performing libertarian males are single and almost, I think there's only one happily married couple of main characters and then there was one family that mentioned having two kids yep a lot of people you've got parents you've got siblings you've got spouses you've got children you can't just pick up and move and so she assumes everybody's the male stereotype nerd with no life <laughs> even dagny <laughs> yeah right yeah yeah so i i think one thing about the what she did in this book is she essentializes people. Um, and so, you know, she, she like the villains are more to, like more villainous in totality and the heroes are more heroic in by her definition in, in totality. And so you don't have a lot of mixed premise people. It's a very stark contrast. Right. Um, and I think you're right, Tamara, because I was thinking about this and I was like, she she viewed the world as more. I, the way I was thinking about it was that she viewed it as more fragile than it actually is. Um, many, many people that would would be the victims here, the the Reardons, are willing to like actually just dial back their productivity. They they, they do like a mini version of a of a Galt's Gulch, but it's not enough to actually defund society. It's just like like you're saying. I'm going to cut back on my hours. I'm going to like enjoy my life outside. And like it perpetuates the system in a, in a way that I don't think, um, I don't know if she didn't anticipate it, but certainly it's not how it's portrayed in her book, right? There's, there, there's this idea that people will get fed up and stop. 
and they don't get fed up actually um they their version of getting fed up is much milder and they kind of partly check out and that part partial checkout kind of prevents the apocalypse that happens in the book from actually happening in real life I think yeah, one I thing she gets right uh, is a bit about language. Uh, she, I've got a passage here, and I don't know where it is. Uh, Boyle and Scudder are talking, you know, Boyle and Scudder used words as a public instrument to be avoided in the privacy of one's own mind. And uh, this idea of like just using words, if you don't mean it, you don't believe any of the things you say, but you push it on people to make them say the words. And once they've signed up, then you can make them do what you want. And so it's uh, the instrumentation of language, and, uh, you know, she asks uh, Quentin Daniels, uh, Dagny asks Quentin Daniels at one point, like, don't you wish to be of any service to humanity? And he says, I don't talk that way. Uh, and I don't think you do either. And uh, yeah, so I think that all the sloganeering is of our time completely. Yep. Yeah. You know, I, I actually think she got a lot of the underlying philosophy correct though i mean one of the things that struck me was at the end it became clear that actually these people were nihilists they didn't actually want to live um and that to me reminded me a lot of some of the social like some things that reminded me of the social justice crowd which is distinctly different from the the villains in this book but they shared nihilism they shared the hatred of the joy and good for like for for being good right um they they shared this kind of like because i want it it must happen this primacy of consciousness thing like uh in fact the entire primacy of consciousness is basically social constructivism right it's like oh this is true because the words make it true um so there's like a lot of there's actually a lot of philosophical similarities but the manifestation is quite different and at least in my opinion yeah i actually believe in the primacy of consciousness but i'm not like these people in the book <laughs> so how what would your distinguishment like how would you what makes you not like the people in the book or like sjw's because i know you're neither uh yeah i'm not i'm not, I'm not like that well I, I and that's actually the thing when i first encountered objectivism i thought it was a bit um contrary to my view of things so i'm, I'm a bit too postmodern to be a objectivist um but yeah i'm basically uh like a i i do you know the philosopher George Berkeley? That's Sorry, say that again? Uh, the philosopher George Berkeley. Oh, mm -hmm. so he basically argued that matter doesn't exist. Um, and that's mainly because there's no experience of matter. There's only an experience of experiencing matter. You know, so, uh, but um, I, I still view uh, objectivity as a useful fiction. So you, your, your supremacy of consciousness is circumscribed by a pragmatic need to deal with things around you. And so you behave yeah. as if that, that how you, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Yes, 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 that's right. I mean, the thing is, consciousness is the only actually observable fact, right? So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, everything else is stuff that you're reading into it. Oh. I think you just accepted one, one part of the skeptical argument and uh, you're rejecting the rest of it, but they've got their hooks in you on one part. So that's, I mean, it could be that you are, 
you are weakened because ultimately you're forced to to admit okay well yeah i don't actually experience the world i just experience what i see of the world so well, you are uh on because man does have this one bit that's primacy of consciousness which is the primacy of judgment you can't trust anybody but yourself you have to rely on your own judgment it's all it comes down to you and not saying truth is a social consensus can we all get around this truth it's i see the truth i perceive something to be true so she has that yeah. primacy of thought and primacy yes. of judgment uh you seem to be uh you know to yeah, me you've too. got a weakened position because you're forced to admit in the end i don't really know the truth because i only have consciousness yeah yeah but the thing is you can't function without there's no it's like as if they have some view of um, of a world beyond the senses, right? I don't have that. I only have that I can see that the senses are the only experience I have. Well, what maybe is what saves you is you actually have a desire to live, whereas I think the villains in this book yeah. didn't, right? Yeah, yeah um, that could be, yes. Yeah. They're more like vampires. <laughs> kind of, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't... The other thing, the other thing that I noticed that she didn't treat at all was uh, there was no tribalism of um, ethnicity or race at all. Like she doesn't even, it's not even an issue to be talked about with her. Like it doesn't, doesn't matter. She totally missed the boat on like, this is one way that people will end up like the world will fall apart partly through this, this infighting of groups. And she didn't really address that very much. It was very much, um, it was very much just about like, the producers and the moochers really but it wasn't she didn't really talk about how people could be turned against each other in in various tribalistic ways she didn't think of the the race and sex and all the other divisions that are into now right i don't think she felt they were relevant at all philosophically so she didn't think they would happen but even um, can you hear me all right yeah. yeah, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'm closer to the Wi-Fi. Um, you know, Eddie Willers is black in the book, and I brought that up in uh, last week, and you just answered, well, Ayn Rand wouldn't care about that. Like, she didn't even think of that. So I think that's one part of what's happening today. Even though she nailed a lot of things that are happening, she didn't think of No. Her, I mean, race doesn't matter. Yeah, it wasn't on her radar. Um. You got really postmodernism pretty perfectly, though, uh, before it was invented officially. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's so much of the postmodernism, and the, the even though we don't have the identity groups in it, uh, there's so much in this that you just see all around us today. She nailed a lot of it in 1957. Oh, so. Yeah, and she wrote it, took her 10 years to write, right? So she started in the 40s. Tens? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So because this the theme of this book for her was much more sweeping. This was the introduction of her, her philosophy generally to the world. Um, and so she really I mean, it's a little bit I love it. And I and but it is admittedly kind of laborious. Like it's it's there's there's <laughs> there's a lot in there. And I think part of the reason for that is she didn't want to um, she wanted to explain things very carefully and as thoroughly as possible. So. Uh, I mean, who writes a book with a two-hour speech that actually takes two hours to read? <laughs> like, that's a that's kind of a weird thing, right? 
Um, and it's all basically a philosophical speech, right? Um, so a question I have for everyone is, you know, like I said earlier, we read all these other books, we read Brave New World and, and Fahrenheit 451 and, and 1984. Um, and one of the things that I, one of the reasons I wanted to read this book as a group is precisely because, not just that I liked it and I think it was prescient in many ways, but um, it's amazingly polarizing. Like, no one else, when you say we're going to read 19, I'm going to read 1984, no one starts ad hominem attacks on George Orwell, tells you, it's a trap, beware, that, that George Orwell's horrible. Blah, blah, blah. Like, no one goes crazy when you mention you're going to read 1984, but you mention you're going to read Atlas Shrugged, and it's like some people just lose their shit and go crazy about how horrible she is and how horrible the book is, and she's a racist and this and that. And blah, blah, blah. Like, they really don't want you to read the book. And for me, that is enough of a reason to read the book uh, because they've got, you've got to be hitting on some kind of nerve that people get that upset. I mean, they don't say that about, uh, you know, Das Kapital or anything. Like, they don't say that about the Communist Manifesto, but they, they do about this book. Fragility. Well, I yeah. think it also ties in with what we were saying before, where she didn't use um, identity or race or ethnicity or any of that. She really stripped it down, and it's very, very boldly black and white, mm -hmm. and it's very easy to understand her message, and I think that really aggravates some people. I like how overt yeah. it was Yeah, I did too. Uh, yeah, like that, like you knew what, who the good characters were, you know, like it was, yeah, I, I appreciate it. The, the the good characters had, had these uh, comically manly names, and the uh, and the bad ones had these these comically wimpy <laughs> ones. Balf Eubank has. Yeah, the character names are pretty pretty good. Wesley Mooch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I. I think it's you know what, Carter. Go ahead. Uh, the the, uh, the selfishness thing. I think that's the reason that people yes. find it so easy to sink their hopes into her is because. Mm. She wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness, and obviously throughout here, she's trying to orient us. Like, we get lost when we start getting away from referencing things to, like, why I want something. That's why something is meaningful to me. That's what a purpose is. A purpose is always my purpose. And when things fall into purpose, they become meaningful and significant. And, of course, other people's happiness is important to me, so, duh. But to say, oh, it's selfless, oh, it's altruistic, I'm not doing it for any reason of my own. It's like, are you sick? where she tries right. to show that the healthy, uh, the emotionally stable, um, the mature uh, consciousness, the emotionally clean and emotionally healthy human being is oriented towards themselves. And so that selfishness is really for her like a bedrock principle of um, psychological health, I think. That, that's exactly it. So yeah. well, most people have trouble thinking that you know, selfishness could be good in any way you know that's automatic kind of rejection of that selfishness selfishness is not it's that can't be good and altruism can never be bad in any way you there's no way to go wrong in that so and the way she uses just the the novel as a as a mode of writing as a just a structure to flesh out her philosophy i think for a lot of people it's like well, is it a novel? What, what is it? It's not entirely fiction. It's not, you know, it's hard to really pinpoint what it is. And then when she puts out those 
there's, you know, kind of a reversal of terms where you thought selfishness was always good. Well, wait a minute, think about this. Does that look good? You know, she questions all that same with altruism and, um, you know, the meaning of sacrifice and John Galt's speech, same thing, um, the original sin and all of that. And what we consider to be goodness is actually, you know, destructive to us because we really just flip flopped everything. Yeah. And the, the word itself is very um, triggering, for lack of a better term, right? Because to Rand, like people, people conflate selfishness with like, oh, if I, if I punch you and take your wallet, that's me being selfish. And like Rand would say that's not selfish, actually. Um, and so her, her selfishness is um, defined very carefully. But when people hear selfish, they just think like, and they've been told greed is the bad thing and blah, blah, blah. And of course, altruism is the altruism is good and altruism is held up because uh if you want to rule someone you got to convince them it's good to abdicate their own self-interest and you know sacrifice for whatever cause and you just you know if you as long as you can get them to agree that their sacrifice is good then you then you have a chance of manipulating what what the cause is um and getting them to do what you want so okay you know selfishness is 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 a good thing she goes to great lengths to explain you know what it actually means it's not just a whim it's not short-term profit you know or a benefit to yourself it is the long-term um uh realization of your values and who you are and your productive self and things like that so it's not just like she just throws it out and says selfishness is good. Uh, she really goes into detail about that, the meaning yep. of values, what it is to hold values, um, you know, the the value of, of reason and the only tool. And it just, it, it is really a wholesome philosophy. It's not just like she just kind of arbitrarily uses these words. Right. And she goes into why I love I actually really one of the things I really like is her um, conception of lying and how when you lie to someone, you're actually giving them power over you. It's unselfish. It's, it's not a selfish act to lie because suddenly you have granted them power over your mind because now you have to you have to constantly alter your perception of reality for them because you've you've given them a falsehood. Um, and uh, I, I really like that because a lot of people view lying as this like, well, lying is what you would do if you could get away with it. But <laughs> altruistically, you don't lie because, you know, you should, shouldn't you care about it. there's some like amorphous, altruistic or even just uh, by edict reason why you shouldn't lie. And she goes kind of out of her way, not just in Atlas Shrugged, but elsewhere to describe, no, lying is actually a, an act of self-destruction and it's not good for you. That reminds me of Dagny's scene where she's at the radio show and they're telling her, you're going, you know, I want you to understand that Reardon gave up his medal to save you and you're going to go on the radio show and tell them you totally agree with this and with what your brother is doing. She goes on the show and she starts going, yeah, I was Frank Reardon's mistress for two years and the radio show host is sitting there looking at it and one of the telling moments was yeah 
he didn't turn it off because he was so used to people giving forced confessions that would embarrass them into compliance that <laughs> he thought it was that sort of thing. Yep. And then she says, think about what the government says. They made him give up the medals so, and his rights so that I wouldn't be prosecuted. So by telling the truth, she's liberating him, herself from that blackmail option. And they blackmail people so much that the radio show host goes, well, is she telling the truth? That's interesting. Or is this part of my job? Yeah, you can't tell. <laughs> Yeah. Um, do you know about the 1957 review of uh, Atlas Shrugged? That Sorry, say that again. The what? Uh, there was a, a review of Atlas Shrugged that came out in 1957, and it was in the Na National Review, so it was mainstream conservative opinion, and it was very, very opposed to it, and it was talking about um, how you might as well fire up the gas chambers. <laughs> and one of the oh. things um, that I noted in the book was that there were quite a few places where the author um, really dehumanized the uh, the moochers. So, you know, that, it's kind of interesting that that's what mainstream conservative opinion uh, was. Yeah, that she she did not, a lot of people assume that she's like a conservative, but those are just like, it's just kind of how leftists assume that if you're not part of Antifa, you're a fascist. Uh, she really hated the conservatives, actually. Um, yeah, I'm trying to understand not think they were the way to save the, the country at all. She seemed more like an individualist, right? I think that her influ the influence of having grown up in Russia when she was a teenager, you can see it obviously in the world that she creates. She's yep. completely against, or all the bad people are the ones who are in the government who are taking over little by little, everything away. They're sort of sucking the life out of the world. And uh, you know that's what happens in a communist country most of the time, or at least from what we both never have to experience. You can bear, you can see it. You can see, and that what and she believes very much in individual rights. And I think that's what you're you're trying to say. She's not necessarily a conservative per se, but she believes in individual freedom, and for each one of us to sort of look and search for, you know, what you know, what we want. And that's, you know, some people will say that's selfish. And that's right. what you're, you're talking about, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think she saw what I've said about, I mean, you know, I know a lot of people that watch the show are Christian, Carrie's Christian, but as an atheist, I, and I said this on the Tim Dukeman show the other day, I'm concerned that Christianity doesn't have a solid philosophic defense of the principles of the West, specifically individualism. And I think she felt that way as well. I think she looked at Christianity and went, well, this is not, this is not sufficient to save you from communism. Um, and she was, as you said, Manu, she like, she grew up in Soviet Russia. She had her, uh, I think her dad's um, yeah, business, business confiscated. She had like, she went through some, some hard times. She, she fleed and came to the U.S. knowing no English, actually, I think at the age of 16. Um, and uh, yeah, she was terrified that the United States would go the way of the Soviet Union. And I don't think she felt like, the conservatives had a principled understanding of enough to defend it. And I think, frankly, she was right, because since she released the book, the conservatives had done jack shit to defend it. So, uh, True. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to understand conservatives at the moment. I'm a libertarian. I'm trying to get my head around it. I'm, I'm definitely not a conservative.
they don't have any principles anymore. They don't stand on principles. It's just kind of empty air. Yeah. Ayn Rand. I do respect the fact they don't like socialism. Well, her characters were very lucky. You know, in Soviet Russia, the best of the best were just simply murdered. Or, you know, if they were lucky, they fled. <laughs> if they saw it coming in time, I don't know, everybody that was worth anything was counted yeah. and, and persecuted and flat out murdered. Yeah. In so fact, she has... They saw it coming. They could figure out what these people wanted and what their code was to be able to escape it. Yes. Yeah. And if, if you've, I don't know if you've read it, but she's got a book called We the Living about. Um, That's the only like, one I haven't read. <laughs> it's based in the Soviet Union and it is about exactly what you're saying. And um, I don't want to spoil it, but. Uh, yeah, it's um, it doesn't have the same feeling that Atlas Shrugged or Fountainhead does. There's a feeling of hope, and that feeling is not. I don't feel like it's there in We the Living. It's because it's set in the Soviet Union, and it's and it's a it's a crushing story. Is that the one with Kira? It's the one with Kira Agranova. Yeah. Oh, I listened um, to the audio. There was an audio on YouTube at some point. Maybe it's not available anymore but yeah there's also a movie that was made yeah. in italy without per, her knowledge or permission that uh i think i think it was made during the mussolini era and the fascists got wind of it and arrested the people or whatever like banned the movie um and uh but the movie's actually pretty good um and someone in chat just said it's semi-autobiographical yeah sort of Right, it's it's sort of autobiographical. Not, I mean, it's not actually autobiographical, but she was a woman of that age growing up in the Soviet Union. So yeah, there's there's definitely parallels there. Um, I don't know, Beverly. You, this was the. What do you think about this book? You you were this was the first time you read it. I know you've yeah read it a little bit. yeah. Um, there were a lot more sex scenes than I expected there to be. <laughs> <laughs> uh Lillian. But fewer rape scenes than the Fountainhead. So Yeah, from what I've heard, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Lillian uh was a B word throughout it. And uh, like just right off the bat, I was like, yeah, and she just kept getting worse and worse. Um I was hoping and I texted you about this though, I was hoping that Reardon and Cheryl, Jim Taggart's wife, were gonna end up getting together in the end, and that didn't happen after she killed herself. So that was yeah. I, I cried when the wet nurse died. It was an emotional part. Oh, I I cried when the wet nurse died. Again, every really? time I read that book, it's the one spot where I like can't control myself when the wet nurse dies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was it's, it's tragic. Because it was more emotional than when Cheryl died because at first I was like, wait, what happened? I had to I had listened to it, so I had to like re-listen to that part though too. I'm like, "Oh, so she threw herself off." And now she's just gone. But then she's dead. the wet nurse had a lot more, a little bit too too long of a part where like it, it was drawn out a little bit too long. I'm like, oh, you got shot, but you're you're lasting. You crawled back out and you lasted for a while to keep yeah. monologue a little bit. But uh, but yeah, it made me cry. And then I was sad about Eddie Willers at the end too, that poor little guy. Um, He's the one who I wanted to get with Cheryl. I was like, well, yeah, maybe I could Eddie have Willers seen the... and Cheryl will get together. Because I got to say, Dagny, or for because you mentioned before that you're that 
you've had a friend who said that like she was reading in the car in the uber or something and then they're like oh that book is racist one we talked about i don't see how it's racist two i think it's a really strong book for like feminists like dagny is such a strong female lead absolutely um but she's a little mary sue i thought because she had like four different men who were in love with her what's a mary sue I don't know oh, what that is. Like someone who's like too perfect, like a character in fiction where you're just like, oh, you're a little bit too perfect. Where oh, 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 yeah. Not flawed okay. enough. So I thought like she has got four guys who are in love with her. And I'm like, that's, that's, I get it. I mean, who, who wouldn't want, want her? But uh, at the same time, it's like, uh, okay. Um, yeah. But all of her characters are kind of like that, right? Like Francisco, for me, Francisco is by far the, my favorite character. Um, like, I don't know how she could go for Jungle over Francisco, but whatever. Yeah, um, I kind of felt that. Yeah. Fell in love with Jungle it. pretty fast. What? It was, probably the, the, it was probably the idea that was. Right. Like, because it was like. like yeah. It yeah. was too immediate. Right. Well, Jungle was sort of an ideal. He was like a Jesus figure or something. And... Yeah. Yeah. She found well, out who and, was John Galt. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the I, I think one of the. I don't know if you noticed this, but one of the reasons is she saved Francisco for herself. So she wrote herself into the novel. She's the writer in uh, Galt's Gulch. There's a there's one lonely writer in Galt's uh... Gulch. Single. And her husband's name is was Frank O'Connor. Um, Francisco Danconia is her husband. Right. In her imagination. And she's the writer. In oh. So I she didn't... was saving Francisco for herself, basically, I think. Okay, I, I like that more than me thinking that she was putting herself into Dagny because then I was like, no. if, if you're writing that and you're giving yourself like four different men who are in love with you, it's like, that's, uh, again, that's Mary Sue. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I, I thought she was flawed. I, I guess I found that like Dagny ended up having that flaw. At the end, I when when they go to the rescue to, to rescue Reardon, she like flat out murders a guy and I was surprised yeah. by that. Like, I get it, but I was also surprised by it. That but made me like her more, because Dagny yeah. frustrates me for most of the book. Because um, you just want her to leave? Like, to go... I'm just like, I, how does she not get it for so long? Yeah. Like, she gets it, but doesn't get it. Like, that that kind of bothers me. Um, but I like that. I like that she shot the guy, uh, personally. Well, that bothered you? <laughs> I, I just... Not, uh... It, it sort of bothered me because it was an example of that dehumanization I was talking about. You know, I, I don't like dehumanization. And... Yeah, yeah. Like Most she... of the characters are like, they stand for ideas. They're not flesh, they're kind of flat, you know, on both yes. extremes. And then Cheryl and Eddie and Wet Nurse, to me, they were the most real, you know, some, someone with actual human qualities. And the rest of them... And because she was flesh now, her philosophy in it, they are, they, you know, they don't feel very human. So that was well, idealized. Yeah. Like, I wish she would have, would have written a really great novel with fleshed out characters and a philosophy all in one package. I think you could criticize the writing a lot for like this sort of like flat characterization yeah. and uh, telling us all always exactly what the characters are thinking so that we are under no like uncertainty or what was their intention and what was the feeling there like she spells it all out it's very i mean novelistically you could criticize this a lot it's just there's nobody in her corner of literature to compare her with so you're like well she's the best in her little corner of the landscape but i mean there's a very b movie quality to a lot of this 
writing, I, I, I would say. I, mean. I don't know. I liked it because I thought it helped move the, the ideas that she was trying to convey along. I think if she had fleshed out her characters more, I think it would have taken away from that. I, can't, I didn't like it at first. When I first started reading it, I thought, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. This is going to be a very long book. <laughs> but the more I got into it and the more I got into the ideas in the book, the more I was glad that the characters were just a little bit flat. It yeah, makes it easier to, like, show the principles involved. Like, mm -hmm. this person is this, this person is that. You can see yep. the resulting conflict sure. in those ideas as somebody result. in the so, chat said it's message fiction or it's like a didactic novel you know it's yeah. trying to teach a lesson more than it's trying to uh, like draw absolutely. you in and make you believe on its own right she was definitely trying to be super con contrasting the two sides right the the heroes or the good guys were all extremely honest i mean almost to a fault right they were extremely honest and genuine and then all the uh, villains were—they're all extreme. They were false. They would all give. They would do things just to make appearances, right? They would—they right, right. would make it look or try to appear or show a side that was not true. When they were doing all these uh, television show, the television or the radio show—I mean, they were making or trying to give an impression to everybody that was not true. And that you know, Jim Taggart was always like that. Yep, he was always yeah. giving a false appearance. He was yeah. always doing that, right? So I think that's what she was trying to contrast, like you said, the, the philosophy of, or, of, of, that's why it's so polarized. Yes. You can clearly see. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, 100%, I agree. That's what she's doing. And by the way, the thing that um, I noticed, because I was in the objectivist community for a while when I, after I first read this book, I was like, ooh, and I was, I was probably, I don't know, 10 years, maybe <laughs> pretty deep in the community. And one thing that I've noticed is a lot of people. So what I ended up taking away from the book, by the way, um, my my overall message that I took out of the book personally was devotion to reason. Like, okay, that's yeah. my method. It's my responsibility. Devotion to reason. You know, and that meant I actually diverged from her eventually in my life, right? Because I was using my trusting my own judgment. But what I noticed by um, a lot of objectivists, they they take that book and they. Um, they do things like assume that all businessmen are Hank Reardon. They don't say this explicitly, but like they view, like you can see how they view bit. Oh, stop going after Bezos. He's Hank Reardon. Well, he's part Hank Reardon and he's part Orrin Boyle. In reality, most of the people that you experience in life are a little bit of Dagny and a little bit of James mixed in one person. And it's the extent to which they're one or the other that you can either like them or dislike them or that they're good or bad. Um, but I think because of that essentialization of characters, I've noticed that a lot of, especially like new objectivists who read the book and get excited about it, tend to like then look at the world through these very polarized glasses. And it's like, that person is all Orrin Boyle and that person is all Hank Reardon. It's like, actually, I like Elon Musk in some ways, but he's kind of Orrin Boyle in other ways. And let's just be honest about it. He's neither, right? Yeah, I guess the, those people, that's it's ironic but they stop using their reason and they just project yes. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's very it's actually very frustrating when you realize that they're just they like a lot of there's actually a lot of ex-christians who do this they they take the bible and they throw it away and they like but instead of replacing it with their own judgment and reason they're like what would john galt do i'm like i, I don't i don't care what john galt would do <laughs> like, what, what would i do the whole message of the book is what would you do not what would john galt do but that's how they think of things.
I see the characters as like either ideal or their extreme views so that each character is an extreme view of one thing or another thing. So when you see it in real life, you can say, oh, that guy's being Dagny or that guy's being Wesley Mooch. And it divides up the different types. I think yep. it's on purpose. Oh, I think you might be right. I think it's, I think it is on purpose. Um, Probably but... everything's on purpose. Everything she writes is on purpose. Right? That's part of the book theme. Yeah, I mean, she, she, this book, because she viewed it as a, uh, I think the primary purpose was to uh, articulate her philosophy. And the, I think the reason it took 10 years is she, like, she had, my understanding is she had, like, she had already, she was already an author. So she already had, like, a, a little bit of a fan base and some people that were kind of into her philosophy that were hanging out with her. She would, like, read passages and, like, go over them with people and, like, take feedback. I don't know how well she took feedback based on, <laughs> what her personality seems to be like but whatever apparently they gave her feedback and like she worked on this like very painstakingly because she really wanted her philosophy to, to be as clearly articulated as possible um but yeah i do agree with some of the literary critiques uh i liked it when i was younger i had more tolerance for the super long like descriptions of things like you can spend three paragraphs describing like the light on a skyscraper and i I remember thinking that was really cool when I was younger, and now I don't know if I'm getting impatient or whatever. I'm just like, ah, I know, it it looks oh, great. Like Can the, we just say that and move on? Like, it's fine. I liked all the '50s noir imagery. Yeah, yeah, the imagery's cool, I guess. But um... yeah, I don't know. I like part of me liked it because where I was like, I wish I could be that descriptive in writing. Th I just when I look at something all that detail does not come to mind to me. But then at the same time, I don't need three paragraphs to tell me what the shirt collar looked like. Yeah. Some of it yeah. became a little bit repetitive. Yeah. Um, you know, they, all the, the good characters were using kind of the same language as that they were born with the phrases they already knew, the phrases and all the villains were kind of, you know, and the descriptions, they become kind of repetitive with the light imagery and stuff like that. So, but you know, that's per, it does not take away from me from the ideas, but it does get a little, little lengthy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still love it. I, I, I love the book. I, I, I do read it every, uh, maybe I should say every 10 years now, maybe five or six years. Like I do try and reread it um, because it puts me in a good mood. Honestly, the book, here's the thing that the thing that I've noticed is that some people read this book I'll put myself in this category. I read the book, and yeah, do I know that um, John Galt is an idealized person, or for me, Francisco, like my favorite character, like, do I know he's idealized? Yes. But uh, I read the book, and I have a lot of hope for humanity because I, I come away going, those are the people that I, like, that's why I'm fighting for Western civilization. Like, those are the people that I care about. Like, those are the people that matter. Um, those are the qualities in humans that matter, right? But I think some people come away from it like, I don't know. They're just, they don't like that successful people are worshiped in any way. And so they're just bitter about the whole thing. Um, and it makes them hate her. Um, I think that's quite telling. Um, well, I'll tell you one thing I really loved about the book was that um, it's the only thing I've ever read that basically describes what I imagine happened in Venezuela from beginning to end. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. 
Yeah. It, I've, yeah. I've never seen anything like that before. Yeah. I mean, almost exact. I mean, exactly. But like, that is a is a pretty close description. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that too. But I also thought that um, one of the other things that people hate about this book, and they hate any reference to Venezuela, some of the, the social justice warriors, so to speak, um, was that people might not produce for them, that they might take their ideas and their efficiency and their production and just take their ball and go home and not do that. And I've talked to some of the people who think that, you know, what, what the socialists want is a good idea. And I said to one of them, um, actually, it was my, my one son. I said, you know, I said, your father would just retire. And he was shocked. I mean, the right. shock all over his face because he couldn't believe that somebody would not continue to stay in the game and produce for them and provide for them. It was shocking to these people. And I thought that was really, really weird. <laughs> but I think that's one of the things they hate about the book because these people take their ball and go home. Yep. No. And by the way, that does happen. Like I, I definitely know people who um, they had six, they built a company, made, made decent enough money that they could retire if they wanted to. And they could go do more. They could go build more companies and stuff. But I think, and I haven't, we haven't explicitly talked about this, but like, I don't know. I think some of them are just kind of like, you know, why they don't, they don't, they don't want to do it. And I, and I think part of it is like, I had a friend who had to move out of California for a year before he sold this company. So he didn't have to pay capital gains tax to the state of California. Like it's just, things are just so, you know, if, if you can save $20 million by moving for a year, you do it, right? And so, mm -hmm. like, or whatever, some large amount of money. And I, th I think a lot of people just are kind of like, you know what, I don't, they don't want to do this anymore. Or they work on small problems or they do something less risky or they retire early. Um, it's a small form of, of shrugging, right? You're totally, I think you're totally right. They're shrugging, but they have no place to go. Or they, there's no Galt's Gulch and there's no better country. So what do you do? Right. Hashtag well, Huntsville for, Space Island. Right. Hashtag Carter's Canyon. <laughs> well, that's the thing. There's, there, go ahead. Well, at least you guys have, have states. I'm kind of stuck on an island here in, uh, in the uh, hermetically sealed uh, uh, police state of New Zealand. Uh, at least it's beautiful there. Uh, it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I was one of the things I was impressed by was the idea that uh, oh, if you uh, attack the capitalist people, all this money is going to be a field day for the guy. There was an expression about that, and I thought the book really proves that uh, it is those high performers who really make uh, a good life possible for the little guy, the person who has no imagination, the person who's just like content to like give me a job. You guys have to tell me my duties. You guys have to provide facility and the insurance and the everything, everything, everything. And I'll go and I'll do my eight hours and then I want to go home and whatever. It's really those high performers that make that life possible. And the alternative is the influence peddlers. And the influence peddlers always come forward like these liberal, like we do the good of humanity. We're thinking about the social goods and all these like virtuous sounding uh, slogans. But in the end, they're not hurt by the downturn in the economy. Like um, 
uh, Eugene Lawson, who sunk the 20th century motor company, or he was the banker who loaned in Wisconsin to all these failing businesses. He's not perfect. He ends up going to the Bureau of Economic Management or whatever. So the influence peddlers, the ones who are in positions, uh, all this trash, and then when things go to hell, they just move to a new organization or they got, they've got connections. It's the little guy, the one who is running the corner store in Starnesville, Wisconsin, where it was, who gets hurt. So that was the thing that really was like, if there's one lesson I would want people to like, you know, that, hmm, I need to rethink here. It's the idea that like rich people are somehow hoarding and taking and holding back like all their wealth. Instead, they're really great wealth generators. And the only alternative you have is somebody who's selling you a bill of goods under like a nice sounding slogan. And really what they're doing is using you or pitting people against each other. Yeah. I mean, Rand has written about this in other, in nonfiction as well, but it's this, um, there's this conflation of what she calls the metaphysical and the man-made, right? There's this idea that like, and you actually see this in the social justice community now about a lot of things when they talk about like indigenous, you know, you stole these riches, America got wealthy from stealing land or stealing this from, from indigenous people or whatever it is. And it's like, well, that wealth wasn't there. Like that's yes. Yes. It's wrong to steal land. We can all, we can all uh, argue about, or we can all agree that throughout history, men have done evil to one another in various forms. And there've been lots of wars and, and taking of land and that kind of thing. But, you know, throughout most of history, you raid someone else, you steal their stuff, you're not, you're like kind of richer for a little while, but if they don't have anything, raiding their land doesn't do anything. Like you don't, you don't have the wealth boom that you had in the West. It's, it's an, it's an ignorance of what, what is money? Like what, what is money? Money is not the land. Money is not the copper. Money is not the oil. Like money is the result of actual productive activity. And I think the left never wants to acknowledge that, as Rand would say, it's, it's the mind. It's the product of the mind. It's the product of a thinking mind. And if you don't have the thinking mind, stealing the factories in a Marxist revolution is only going to last you so long um, because you don't know how to build and maintain the factories because you didn't do it. Um, and it's, it's a, to me, it's one of the most, it's one of the most ugly and evil things to discount the people who actually make our lives better. And I, you know, I, when I, cause I'm old, I used to use Bill Gates as this example, but it was like, look, Bill, Bill Gates, my life's not worse off because of Bill Gates. It's better. He didn't take, he didn't take his billions by, he didn't make billions of dollars by taking something I had. I had crap. He created something that made me be more productive that I could buy that like voluntarily that made my life more productive. Um, but that's not the, the, you know, that doesn't comport with the psychology of resentment that is. Yeah. It's all, I mean, isn't it really the root of it is ingratitude for what other people produce, like envy in your own life and being upset because someone else does something and you didn't do it. Um, right. mm-hmm. you, I mean, you have the opportunity, you certainly can do it, but I mean, like, it's like what you're saying, it doesn't matter if there's oil under the ground, it doesn't matter if there's copper mines, it doesn't matter if there's diamonds, if you don't go and dig for them and figure out how to get them out of the ground, it's, that, it's of no value, you know, you've got to do something 
with what's there. You can't just say, oh, this is valuable. You've got to actually do something. And not everybody will do it. Not everybody okay. has the willpower or they can't, yeah. Right. I mean, drive most of what our lives and... rely on, we couldn't reinvent. At, at the end of part one, I'm paraphrasing, but Ellis Wyatt says, you know, he, or he writes on a sign, I left it exactly as I found it. Take it. It's yours. After he burns it. It's like to drive that point home. Like, it really was nothing. It was Ellis Wyatt that made something. She brings up the uh, English uses the term making money. I think she mentions in there somewhere that no other language has that. I don't know if that's true. She makes blanket statements like that. But it is interesting that in English you say making money. The money is created by the, the labor, by the output. Yep. By the way, Keith, just as a decide, I, I've owned for like 20 some odd years WyattOil.com and I've literally done nothing with it. All it is is like, it's just that phrase on a blank page. Because <laughs> I love I love Ellis's, Wyatt's response so much, right? He just, I'm leaving it as I found it. Take over, it's yours. Um, and, you know, the thing that I, that I think is... Um, telling is how they treat Galt during, I love how they torture him because their words aren't like, do this thing. It's like, tell us what to do. You must lead us. It's, it becomes so essentialized. Like they, they're torturing him to tell them what to do. Like they're torturing him yeah. to get him to think for them. And it's, uh, I don't know, to me, it's just such a, it, it's, it's, yeah. it's such a good the scene. Other one is like taking the character to the extreme. It's like so ridiculously extreme. And she's doing that to make the point. When right. I read it, I don't think that she's really, I don't interpret it as saying we got to create a gulch, or although maybe we do need to. But anyway, I think she's really warning you. It's like the dystopia is, this is what people are going to have to do if you guys don't stop this. So the point is to stop it. Recognize that yes. it's happening and stop it not to necessarily have all the good people leave. Right. And it, it right. took most of the novel um, for, you know, for Reardon and for Dagny to really understand what these people were after, that at first it just seemed, well, they were helpless and selfish and needy, and that's it. And then, wait, wait, there's more. They're not just selfish and needy and, and, and helpless. They want to use your virtues and your 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 values to take care of them and then there's more that's not it their their envy is that you're able that you're competent let's take advantage of that and it, there's just more and more and more layers and then at the end of it it's like no they just they really they're jealous and they want to sacrifice everything that's good about you and they want you to do it to yourself so that so that anything they do is justified and look they did it to themselves this is what it's all their fault it's not us we didn't do it they did it they brought us down to this state um and it's just that the, the layers of evil and destruction you know it took the characters so much time to realize what was actually happening to them in order to step back and say i'm not going to be part of this i'm not participating in your evil plan Actually, the Prime Minister of New Zealand was trying to argue that the lockdowns weren't, weren't legally required after um, being authoritarian. So that's kind of similar. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's one of the errors of, of most of the characters in the book, though, too, right? Is just naivete. It's they, they can't... Dagny can't fathom that 
these people actually don't want to live like they they want to destroy life more than they want to live like they want to destroy the good even if it means their own death um it's such a reprehensible evil that i think a lot of people just can't fathom that that's what it's about although i do think not you know granted she has extreme like you know essentialized versions of people but i do think that is the underlying philosophy of a lot of social justice warriors i think it's nihilism and resentment and like they want to tear it down even if it means they die along with it that's okay do they all yeah, realize that little... they are like that that they are nihilist though do like they jim... know it well jim taggart didn't he realize that at the end when he was like yeah, but he didn't know it for the entire novel right that's what i'm saying is that like that they yeah like yeah. they are naive about their nihilism yeah, I think I think the levels of uh, self-reflection um, were a, a little bit implausible in places. <laughs> so you don't think he would ever have noticed it? <laughs> yeah, I don't. That's right. Yeah, you know what? It's interesting that you say that because this time when I read it and Jim broke down, I was like, "Really? He noticed? I I, I did note. I, I did have. A, I paused at that point this time because uh, I do kind of feel like they're just never gonna." Until they're dead, they're just not going to notice. They're going to die that way and never know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I think so. Uh, Philip, okay. you were going to say something? I, I just, no, I'm just a little critical of, uh, I, I'm thinking about uh, Carter saying, oh, I found the Dagny so frustrating, you know, that she doesn't come around to it. It's like, Sorry. well, Carter, I mean, how, how much more, like, you know, when they've sunk their hooks into every profitable and productive concern in society and you can't possibly have a job unless you sign the statement of this that and the other what you support social causes at what point are you like you know what i'm taking my ball and going home i mean maybe you can say what you're doing right now is taking your ball and going home but i mean there's no uh like there is no alternative there's no gulch that you can go to and i think that not yet we all we don't know what to do we, you know you, you can't she, she, Daphne repeatedly says, like, why did we leave it to the fools? It should have been ours. And that's the way a proud person will feel, is that I'm Good the point. owner of this. There's no reason why these the fools should have it. And then there's also the sense of, like, you know, as, as things progress and more and more of our landscape gets taken over by you know, bloodsuckers, there's no point at which I'm like, well, it's done too much for me. I'm just going to opt out. Like, there's no opting out, so you, what do you do that's a that's a fair point. I mean, I I wasn't really frustrated when, with her until after the gulch, um, right? And then it was like I don't know. It's been explained at this point, but mm-hmm. I mean, I don't. I'm not like I don't think she's bad. I was just frustrated with her because I wanted her to to realize and and join because she's causing herself so much suffering. But uh, I, I agree. Know, you make a fair point. I mean, you know, she's the heroine, so. Also, you know, uh, Reardon says at one point, uh, one must uh, concern oneself with the sane, not with the insane. You know, the, mm. a sensible person does not spend a large chunk of their time like puzzling over something that they know to be insane, that they react to. Well, that's just nuts. You, you focus on what you can do. Uh, yes, we do. Uh, well, but, you know, with, with the idea of action, you know, he sees that he can't do anything about what he's saying are doing to his business, so he focuses on what he can do productively. So he continues to try to work and be productive, and where action is not possible, thought so is really kind of like spinning the wheels and he comes to that conclusion. And so I think, yeah. And I think a lot of... Go ahead. I think a lot of Dagny's... Um, 
identity is is wrapped up in her company and her abilities and she has a lot of pride in what she does i think that's why it's so hard for her to let it go mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it's the weird whole- that like that she and galt are like galt's the first person to give up and she's the absolute last person to give up um and yet there's obviously a sense of that those two being the kind of two most heroic characters right even though they're at odds the entire book um i don't know i don't know if that means anything Um, (laughs) emphasizing the difficulty of the decision maybe maybe or maybe just believing that the world can be this evil there's just no way they can be so evil to just use up everything and destroy everything um you know raise everything off the ground and so it's persevering. I really like the um, how she elevates, you know, the pride and the confidence and the ability in any job. It doesn't matter if you're right. passionate and you really love. It could be flipping pancakes. It doesn't matter what you do. If you're efficient, you're productive, you're you're capable, you're confident about what you're doing. It doesn't matter what you do. There's always going to be a place for you. Yeah. Like Francisco yeah. says, I would give anything to be the foundry manager for a year to Hank Reardon. Like, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And and got- there is a recognition of like, um, there's a recognition of, this is the thing, I think a lot of people read this book and they come away saying like, oh, she's just worshiping the best like the most, the smartest, most productive, and like, yeah, those are the heroes. But there's an explicit recognition of of people whose abilities are not those of Hank Reardon, but who are honest and doing their best job and are competent. There's an explicit recognition of their value in this book. Often, there's many examples of that. When when Francisco is one example uh, is when Francisco goes to meet Hank Reardon after the coal guy gives up. He specifically says like would you do the work for Eddie Willers? He doesn't have your mind, but he'll work just as hard. Like Eddie Willers is an example of what you were just talking about. I think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And even the, even the bum on the train that Dagny gives a job to, she's like, Oh, someone competent, like excellent. <laughs> there's, there's like, there's a, um, there's an appreciation, uh, for him. And, uh, Yeah. No, I think that's more well, but important. If you think that. about it, if you think about it, though, when you see the contrast of the two worlds, and you have all these people that go away, I mean, the majority of the people in the world are those. They're not the the leaders. They're the doers or the you know the the ones who are doing the work itself. And in this type of scenario, they're left to die. Really, I mean, supposedly, right? There's no food. There's no you know everything is going to you know going down and uh unfortunately <laughs> you know it's a contrast of the world obviously it's fiction but wow yeah i mean it, it 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 sort of says the great the 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 heroes are the ones who are actually have some they're driving and they have an idea they have goals they're selfish dagny i think what what her situation was that she so much cared about i think eva was the one who said it she so much cared about the company and what her uncle had done and she wanted to create it and she wanted to 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 lead it and and she didn't want to see it die 
and that's why she stays all the way till the end, right? Mm -hmm. she, she just can't. She certainly had a lot more to lose than golf, right? Yeah, but it's also yeah. great that she's a woman too, because obviously we know the the difficulties that women have had over the history, and I think that's one of the points that that Anne wanted to make in, in the story. I mean, she's she's basically like the only, almost the only woman in the in the story, except for mm -hmm. for Hank Reardon's uh, wife and uh, the uh, Cheryl. Uh, the, the girl that got married to Jim, right? Right. Yeah. Carter, she, I thought your observation was a, was a good one. Just like, you know, they're both heroes, Dagny and John Galt, and John Galt being the first one. I mean, there's something that's really uh, admirable about the person who sees it immediately, that's corrupt, and just won't have any part of it. And then there's something really admirable about the person who's like, I see all the corruption, but there's but still, still something go. good in this world, and that's my will, my continued faithfulness to what is good still in this corrupted world and the fact that uh, I, I mean to me uh, that this shows uh, Rand's of, of two mindedness about this you've got mm -hmm. to admire both sides of that yeah and all yeah, the steps in between like there's there's steps in between Nicole Guy, Ellis Wyatt like he's, he's celebrating everybody from the whole range of John Galt to Dagny yeah. Uh, one person who had a bit of a divided mind, I think it was Dan Conway. Um, and uh, so he has to give up his railroad. Was it the Phoenix Durango or something or other? And uh, so he quits because he sees that, like, they're just taking this from me. But you see that he's been infected with um, a certain, like, uh, the words have stuck in his head. And so he's like, I, there's no way to decide except if it's not the majority. I mean, however fair way would you decide? I, I, I don't know if I'm taking this off in a, a direction that wasn't this conversation wasn't going, but to me, the, the different people who drop out at different points in the book, like show different things, and that guy showed that like you can be a productive person and a straight shooter and uh, all these good things, and yet you don't ha you've missed something if you don't have the uh, self confidence to say. No, what they're doing is wrong, and what I represent—they stole something good and, and took something good. He said, "What other ways there to decide if not the majority?" So he's been infected by an idea that makes him lesser, you know, in a way that Ellis Wyatt still has the pride of somebody who knows he's good. And I don't even know if it's just pride, right? It's just a—it's just a philosophical error. Like he doesn't know what is like. He, he's never really thought about what's good. Like he's he's willing to be like, oh, I I guess the majority is what's good. Like how else do we decide, right? He's trying to be a good person, um, and he's he's following the moral code that he thinks is that he's probably been taught is the right moral code, and he's trying to do it the right way and just say, okay, well, I guess I, I guess I have to bow out, right? Um, yeah, he's a tragic one. He's a tragic Hank one. Reardon. Hank Reardon has the same uh, flaw, except he's the one who learns in the course of the book that he has accepted mm -hmm. it at the beginning of the book that he's somehow evil. Like I am selfish. Go ahead and call me this, and he re regards his own sexuality as degraded and you know mm -hmm. obscene. And yet he has to like, learn that like I've actually allowed them to stamp all the things I do and that I know to be good to be bad, and I have to accept it. I'm a depraved person, and he has to uh, dig that up from. I thought Reardon had the most growth as a character in the book. Just like everyone else kind of already 
you know, Galt and Francisco starting off, they already were where they were. Dagny did change at the end, but like Hank had to change. Like she was teaching him some stuff too about like himself and, and, and just like his mind and body and whatever. And so he eventually stood up to his family. He eventually left. And so I, so I just thought he had the most growth overall. I think you're right. Yeah. He was the one I related to the most when I read the book the first time. Um, because I was going through personal like relationship issues and it was the beginning of my career. I mean, Keith knows Keith was, Keith was around 25 years ago or whenever, right? Uh, and I, that's one of the things I really like about Reardon is his life is, uh, he's, he's, he's probably most, he's the most fleshed out as a character where we kind of understand all the different things, like all, all his, his feelings about a lot of different things, the, the issues, the, the ways in which um, he's been affected by basically just a philosophic error and how that's manifest in his life in a whole bunch of different ways um, and has to kind of, and slowly pulls himself out of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. I thought that he was going to fall hard when he was going to get the story of, uh, sorry to change the, go on a tangent, but uh, having Dagny sort of tell him that he was in the love of his life because obviously, I mean, up to the point when they were together, it was like that he was in mad in love with her. And to the point that uh, he got blackmailed and he gave in because of what he felt for her, right? He was trying to save her reputation. Right. And then when he sees her, sees her coming back and she sort of, well, I guess she, she didn't even tell him because she, he figured it out. But right. yeah, I don't know if that's how that happens in the real world. That <laughs> you know, I was, I was waiting for it to be a lot you know, more uh, difficult, but I mean, yeah. I that it was. He, he definitely grew, like like you're saying. Definitely, yeah. Everything. To so, me, it's kind of go interesting ahead. how. Go ahead. To me, it was kind of interesting how Ayn Rand's personal life and views affected a lot of the characterization of women. Mm -hmm. uh, the main character Dagny is cheating on a, cheating with a married man. And that was absolutely anathema in the 1950s, but Ayn Rand was in a long-term relationship with a married man. So she's justifying the undermining of mm, marriage because that fits her. And then Dagny- That's not true though, Tamara. She was, she was married to Frank O'Connor and she was in a, an explicitly open, honest relationship also with Nathaniel Brandon. So she wasn't sleeping with a married man other than her husband. Um, and it was honest. I think there was some weirdness about it, and clearly they had a weird falling out and all this kind of stuff. I'm not trying to hold her up on, on a pedestal in her personal life, but just to be clear, she was not sleeping with a married man. There was also a very critical nature of very feminine women and housewives that I think affects Cheryl as the sympathetic Mm -hmm. idiot who marries up and then realizes how bad her husband is and kills herself and then the manipulative shrew that's uh frank Weir hank reardon's wife Lillian. and it's like there's only one happily married couple and even at the end they aren't married they're not creating kids the contrast would be robert heinlein who wrote some very libertarian fiction a lot of his characters whether they're in group marriages, single marriages, series of marriages, they have families, they have kids, they're passing on their values, there's a couple generationships. But 
there's a family and a structure basis, whereas Ayn Rand stuff, Anthem is very, does have, you know, the man and the woman off into the wilderness, creating essentially a family, but I'm Atlas Shrugged is very individualist to the point that even when they're lovers, they're not combined as a unit. They're so highly individualized. Yeah, so by the way, I need someone in chat correcting me. Sorry, Tamara, you're, you're right. According to this person in chat, Brandon was married. His wife was agreeable to the whole thing. So it was above board. It wasn't cheating, but he was, apparently he was married. Yeah, I, thought he was married I think I read that too, that they were both married. Yeah. Like an open marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, look, the thing with, um, here's, okay. Marriage is a weird one because I think she gets, some things I, I agree with you she doesn't really treat like she doesn't talk about kids a lot in the book right i think you mentioned you're tomorrow you're the one who mentioned like she only has one example of a mom right um in the whole in the whole book and a positive example of a mom in the whole book um and I, the thing i think she would argue for marriage like she wasn't anti-marriage um i think the thing that she would argue is that uh you know, you're you're with that other person because of mutual value, and you would be in a long-term relationship, and that you know, marriage would be fine. Um, I think one thing, just as an, because I, I got married when I was an objectivist originally, <laughs> um, and then divorced, by the way. And I'll just as a personal story, most of the objectivist community didn't um, gave me no advice about the downsides of divorce. They were just like, yeah, yeah, whatever, like you know, it's fine, you move on, like upgrade to Galt or whatever it was, right? That was, that's kind of the, the attitude a little bit. And I think one thing that's missing from that is um, there is a lot of shared experience and uh, history with someone that matters. And I don't see that as something that she really acknowledged at all. And so um, I do think there is a tendency from what I've seen for objectivists to be too flippant about switching partners and be like, oh, like, you know, we're, we're hitting a rough patch instead of going to marriage counseling and really trying to work through this because there's real value here that's been built over time and and whatever, we're just gonna like, yeah, we're gonna call it a day and we're gonna divorce. And I think, I think that's a little bit dangerous, especially when kids are involved. Um, Rand had no kids. Um, but the thing I'll say about individual individualism and being two separate entities when you're married, uh, Obviously, there's a, there's a point at which that doesn't make sense, but there's you can read psychologists who focus on sex and relationships, and actually, one of the things that kills uh, romance and passion in a marriage is the fusion. Um, it's too much fusion, uh, and when you fall in love with someone, you're falling in love with a separate entity. And like, if you go to a, if you go uh, listen to marriage and sex therapists, or you know, go go to one they one of the things they'll tell you to do is to is to separate and have some not not like physically necessarily separate but um like i have i know one example of someone who's the therapist said look he likes to go ride motorcycles um like force him to go every weekend on his own for a few hours out to ride motorcycles and you go do something on your own stop being together all the time and and there's a reason for that psychologically if you're together all the time and kind of fuse Fusion isn't hot, right? It's not attractive to be with like just one blob together. So there actually is, I, I don't think the individualist aspect of objectivism is 
uh, I don't think that's actually toxic to marriage. I, I do agree that it's practiced, that, that like I said, divorce is a little bit uh, too whimsically um, done in the objectivist community. And obviously Rand's relationship status probably isn't the best choice for everyone. She also didn't have kids though. Um, but I don't see a conflict between individualism and, and long-term committed marriage. Are there Very married characters in her other books? Or other fiction books? Mm. I mean, Fountainhead, but not really. I mean, that's not really a marriage. <laughs> that was like a. Yeah, I don't. I, not really. I wonder. I wonder if you know. Obviously, she grew up in a different era than we did. We are. But you, what you're saying is true. The individualism that that they display and sort of the relationships. I remember now, as you're talking about it, reading the book, and, and from what I recall, all the people that were supposedly in marriage, they all had like their separate rooms and stuff like that, if I remember correctly, right? Cheryl had a separate room from Jim Taggart. Uh, Hank Reardon had a separate But that might have been an era thing. Like, yeah, I think that's an era thing because now I remember my, my grandfather and my grandmother on my, my mom's side, they, they, they didn't have separate rooms, but they didn't have like the traditional what you see today, like a, a, a queen bed or a king bed. They had their own separate beds. It was just, was just weird to me now that I think about it now, but that's how they grew up. And my grandfather grew up in Europe and Spain during during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, but but maybe it was an era thing. And, and I, I agree with what you're saying, Carter, that probably having some individual freedom when you're married is probably healthy for, for, some, for you, for a couple. I didn't know that was... If that was an era thing, or it was a rich person thing, because they're all rich, so I didn't know if that was yeah, just could be too. worse <laughs> or better. It could be a combination. <laughs> but I yeah, they have like enough rooms. They have they have enough money to have several rooms in their house. <laughs> yeah, smelling well if you can. Television shows when they had one room, they would often have like two beds, separate beds. Right? Yeah. Well, that was yeah. a yeah. You weren't allowed to. That was a. TV production thing, though, like as far as what they were allowed to show on, on Sure, TV. but I, you know, which came, like, I get that it was, but if that was a TV production thing, the question's like, well, did that reflect real life in any way? Like, maybe that was part of a real life thing, too. I don't know. Maybe. I want to say no, but maybe. Okay. I have no idea. I don't know. Uh, someone says, Possibly. my grandparents had separate rooms. It was their form of birth control. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, that could be it, too. So someone's claiming that I'm misrepresenting Rand's views, and so they're going to say, here's straight from her, I consider marriage a very important institution, she says. Uh, but it is important when and if two people have found the person with whom they wish to spend the rest of their lives, a question of which no man or woman can automatically be certain, blah, blah, blah. There's more of the quote. Yeah, I don't think I'm misrepresenting her views at all. I know what she said about it, and she is supportive of marriage, and I said that she was supportive of marriage. What I said was objectivists tend to divorce too easily, which is also true. Um, I think there's a... So there's a the trade-off between morality or moral rectitude and stability in society. And so, you know, marriages uh, tend to uh, persist for a long time in which nobody's like absolutely walking around with the conviction, I'm with the right person, you know, 24 hours a day. They're sort of like, eh, I'm not changing anything. There's no special reason to dig it up and, and change it. And maybe objectivists because they have this sense of moral rectitude and like there's the right way and whatever that's, uh, if, you, if it's not right, then just ditch it because it, everything's disposable. But it's like, 
that's what conservatives get that maybe libertarians or objectivists or whatever other thing don't get is that no there's actually like a virtue to stability and to things that you've invested a lot of time in even if moment to moment they don't make sense to you or they're not like fountains of like virtue right and and in fairness to rand as much as people want to like people like to criticize her just because they like we talked about before they hate that she likes selfishness and, and attacked altruism. So she's the, she's the devil. Um, you know, as much as people don't like the relationship with Nathaniel Brandon, it was honest. And she did stay married to Frank O'Connor for her entire life, uh, his entire life. Right. So, uh, she, she did have a long-term successful relationship from by all indications. Um, so, you know, and she so, wasn't I, nowadays so that would be pretty good <laughs> like the divorce rate's pretty high like she, she's she's on the side of quote traditional family values in that sense that conservatives would like i think you have to say that her own personal view is represented by her marriage which was her almost her entire life yeah. so that has to be what she thought about marriage even though she did have the branded name branded thing but it's only those two right and even that that affair, whatever you want to call it, was long-term, right? It lasted for decades. And Dagny, right. there's only two men in Dagny's life, right? Three right at the end. But it's not I – th I think the objectivists, I, or I suspect a lot of them, are taking advantage of, of that philosophy to just fool around a lot more than they should. Exactly. They're yeah, lo looking at the characters and taking a literal prescription. Like, they're super independent. They don't have kids. They don't have families. You know, it's 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 like it's easy for them to move in and out of these relationships. For most people, that's not how it is, and um, you know, not the characters are so focused. You know, they work half to death to preserve their their businesses and you know and 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 their their the creation of their lives. And I would think that they would do the same with their relationships, but because they're single, you know, it's it's just easier. But for most people, it's not as simple as that. Right. And and she doesn't really ever because she never had, and maybe it's because she never had kids, but she doesn't really talk about children, um, right? Except for the one, the one example that uh, was brought up earlier. So, um, yeah, I I think. You're right. It's easy when you're both wealthy business tycoons. It's easy to have an affair and then end it and move on, right? Um, but when there's like <laughs> you're sharing a house and you got three kids, uh, you know, maybe you need to be a little bit more careful uh, about making the right selfish decision for the rest of your life uh, and what to do with it. So, and there aren't any characters in the book that just have like multiple partners constantly changing. I don't, there's no characters in that. Well, uh, no, but there is the fake persona of Francisco, which is viewed with, like, not viewed, uh, that's not held up as a standard, that's held up as a uh, despicable thing, right? And Jim. How come that's the one you like the best? <laughs> I like the actual Francisco, not the fake Francisco. <laughs> I think that's that's an evil thing. She's holding that up as evil. And in the end, right. you find out that he wasn't the playboy, like Hank Reardon finds out first. But everybody starts to realize that was just a persona that he was doing. Right. 
Yeah. Cam- camouflage to someone. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I just have a couple notes I wanted to mention. One was, I don't know if people know this, but I think Dr. I'm 90% sure of this. I'm pretty sure Dr. Stadler was based on Oppenheimer, um, which, uh, which makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, but there is a thing, I know I've mentioned this on a show before, but there is a recognition uh, among the objectivist community of like, I don't know if they call it this necessarily, but my friends and I did, like there's a Dr. Stadler syndrome, right? Where there's this, there does tend to be a uh, a dichotomy between, especially in among engineers, you can see it in Silicon Valley actually manifest right now. Um, there's a lot of respect for reason and evidence and um, and your own judgment, your own rational judgment when it comes to dealing with things when it comes to writing code, building a battery, whatever it is. Um, but when it comes to the realm of politics or ethics, there is this assumption that that reason is is uh, inept, that it's impotent to deal with these things and they they abdicate that responsibility to whoever seems to be in charge in society at the moment of those kind of thinking. And right now, the people that are in charge of that are the social justice warriors, which is why that's what's being implemented. And that's what she had at the end during that same rescue, rescue where Dagny killed the guy that she gave. Like, you have to make this choice. You can't ask anyone else. You make the decision. And then he didn't. Right. And then he died. Right. Right. Um, because Rand's, I mean, she said that, I don't, I think she said this in the book. She said it elsewhere. If she didn't say it in the book. Um, your like the fundamental evil is to to Rand, which I agree with. I think the fundamental evil is uh, choosing to not think. Right when you're like mm-hmm. choosing evasion is is the evil. Right when you're confronted with something, not thinking about it, choosing to not think about it is is the evil. Um, and so it makes sense that not only it makes sense that that's the kind of person that Dagny shot. Right, it wasn't some other because other people shot guards. Right, and there was there was general violence happening in that scene because they're rescuing Galt. Um, but the way that she did it and what she shot him for, I think, is symbolic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like so I read the Spark Notes analyses of this too, as I was just to make sure because I was doing the audiobook and I get distracted easily. But one of the things that I liked in it, it mentioned. Uh, it said for Rand, nothing could be worse than the idea that a rational man must subordinate himself to an irrational group. And I thought that made a lot of sense with just the entire book itself. Yeah. 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 Someone in chat says Rand was an atheist, right? Yes. Rand was an atheist. Uh, which is why I'm a little bit bummed that Carrie's not here today, but that's okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> Um, and, but Rand was an atheist because she, because she valued reason. In fact, what she asked to be on her tombstone, I don't know if it was on her tombstone, but I remember her being asked, what does she want on her tombstone? And people would guess like, oh, you would want individualist or whatever. She just said the word rational. That's her. That was her philosophy, rational. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I, I, she she did not view religion as helpful to individualism or Western society in any meaningful way. What were you saying, Stephen? 
Um, I, I think of it more as a responsibility than thinking. It, I sort of I can't quite get my head around it because everybody thinks all the time. So, I mean, maybe it's not rational or whatever, but that's... Would it, would it, can you expound it. on that, Stephen? What do you mean? Um, that the fundamental evil is trying to evade responsibility rather than trying to evade thinking. Oh, I think she would say the responsibility of thought, maybe, but yeah, yeah. I think we, uh, yeah, I think it's the same idea, just seen from a different angle. Well, actually, thinking means being specific. If you're specific, well, then suddenly you come down somewhere, and you're responsible for where you've come down. You have a position. You know, it's the the, people, the characters in the you know James and his friends are always uh, seeking to be as diffuse as possible, not to say anything specific. The, the, the right. frequent line at the beginning of the book is, I didn't say that, you know, that's not what I'm saying. They don't say what they are saying. They just want to make sure that they're not being committed to anything. And I think specificity belongs bit. to thought and specificity belongs to commitment. So. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And someone points out in chat that she's, she means rational thought when she says thinking. Yes. Uh, I don't, I think that she would argue no other kind of, mental capacity is thinking. Um, so, yes, uh, that's what that's what she means. So Carter, can you say more about like, what, how do you solve the Oppenheimer Stadler thing? Because there's a difference between natural things, uh, you know, the natural sciences, and thinking about what humans do. I mean, human societies can't be organized. Uh, the way that uh, certain chemical uh, chemi chemicals on the uh, what is it called the periodic table can be right. So, so this is why this is why Marxism gets away with claiming that it's rational when it's not, right? So they're like, oh well, it works in the sciences, so now we have to organize human society in a rational way, and so here's here's the Communist Party, and we're going to all do whatever, right? But um, that's what she means by this, and what. Um, what I, I totally agree with this, uh, the, your rational capacity for is that deals with the real world, that deals with the sciences, that's the same capacity you need to answer philosophical questions like, how should humans live on Earth? And when you use that capacity, um, Rand's argument would be, there's a couple ways to arrive at kind of a similar conclusion, but Rand's argument would be, you, you have to look at what's the purpose of philosophy? It's to tell man how to live on Earth. Okay, fine. So given that that's the purpose, what is, what are the, what's the essential characteristics of humans? Um, what does that require? And she, from there, she derives, um, she derives individual rights and says, okay, well, you can derive you know, uh, the right to life, well, corollary is the right to property, um, which she goes into. And so you can, you can derive a set of fundamental human rights, which sound actually quite similar to um, the rights that the more uh, deist or theist philosophers have articulated, kind of similar to Lockean rights. Um, but she'll, she'll go through and say, okay, these are, the, these are the rights. And now it's like, okay, we have to organize a society that protects these rights because that's what's required for man to live on earth. That's, that's what's required. Um, and that's all very rational. Um, and I think her, her concern, right, her right concern, just concern about uh, religion, uh, any religion, is it's um, at least all the major religions are are based on a book 
that is open to interpretation and it's not philosophically rigorous. Uh, and so because it's not philosophically rigorous, you can't argue with it. You can't argue with my interpretation of the Bible versus your interpretation of the Bible. And so it leaves the room, it leaves room for social justice warriors to take over the Southern Baptist Convention, which is what they're doing. Um, so I, I, think, I think that's her, her basic argument is a rational, you know, solving the Stadler problem means getting the Stadler to understand that his, his reason rational thought actually does apply to the realm of ethics and philosophy and, and should be applied to the realm of ethics and philosophy. Um, but because we haven't done that, we've kind of left it up to, uh, <laughs> we left it up to crazy authoritarians to, to claim that they represent reason and we're, and, you know, it's irrational to treat humans like fungible, like you don't, you can't treat humans like an inanimate fungible object, but that's kind of how they're, treated by communism like humans aren't that it's irrational to do that but that's how they're treated i don't know if that makes sense yeah no it does i mean you um, can see in the book like you're what you're saying carter and obviously now as you think about it every one of the heroes was always a person who who would think for themselves and would do things and all the other ones that were the and well the the, the, the villains were all or everybody really was always asking, well, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Nobody mm -hmm. thought. Nobody had individual thought. It was always somebody had to tell me what to do. Even at the end, when they're trying to save the world, the, the government itself was asking John Galt to tell him what to do because they didn't know what to do. Yeah. But, but, but that was, I mean, that's that's the philosophy that Ayn Rand has. I mean, she wants people to to use their mind and decide and, and be reason, and use reason, right? Um, yeah. I mean, there, there's a lot of quotes in the book where she she makes it very clear. I I, uh, mm -hmm. I had it some, and um, you know, it's paralleling it to the today. For example, just looking at what we're going through, coronavirus. Not here much in the U.S. as much as other places, but it's almost like in some some areas where they're telling the the the, the whatever the government is in your where you live is like, no, you have to stay at home. You can't do this. You can't do that. You have to wear a mask all the time. Not to say that that is not necessarily a good thing, but everybody, you have to be told what to do. It's like you're a little child. Right. You cannot decide right. for yourself or do what's best for you, which is, I think, what she's advocating. And well, I believe that, too. I think we should all have the freedom to decide uh, and, and do, you know, right. based on what we think is best. And this At is one why point. Can, I can piss people off with this. This is which I'm going to do for fun. <laughs> this is why. This is why you don't raise your kids in an environment that's authoritarian. That is, you do it because I said so, or you do it because of a punishment, because that teaches them that the reason to do things is someone else's authority, which is why I also don't like religion. The reason to do this is because it's written down in the sacred book. That is not the reason to do it. That's not the reason to be honest. That's not the reason to do these things. You need and it's selfish motivation for behaving well. Um, and, needed, and it needs to be your choice. Um, and I think we end up with automatons that are, you know, as soon as someone else is in charge, they're already preconditioned, especially with public education, they're already preconditioned to listen to authority. Um, and someday that authority turns into social justice warriors or Marxists and like, well, you get what you get at that point. But I'm sure people will hate me for that. <laughs> I don't hate you for that. I know. Not, not here. <laughs> I know. I was just pointing it out. There, there's, 
the the problem with some type of religious people that are just following the the book and whatever religion they are when they abandon religion they switch to some other authority figure like the government which is even worse yeah um, at one point Dagny actually does tell them what to do she says uh, lower taxes and fire yourselves yeah that's true right (laughs) yeah (laughs) he gives them instructions that he knows they're not going to do yeah, but they can't understand like, oh, it. We're not going to do that. Not that. <laughs> tell us yeah. other things. Yeah, that's well, what I had said too. Yeah. You know, tell us what to do, but not that. Anything else? Anything right. else? Without us having to give up any of our power. <laughs> right. Right. That's the other thing. They are very much about power, not about um, anything that they claim to be out. Like, helping humanity do this or whatever. None of the motives that they, they espouse are true. It's actually just power, which is very social justice right? It's just power. And, he, and, and Galt reveals that when he basically just articulates more clearly, get the hell out of my way, when he says, well, abolish taxes and, and give up your, <laughs> like, fire yourselves. Like, oh, well, not, not that, not that. That's, that's the one thing we care about is our power. Great too. Um, I, I would push back a little bit. I know this is not uh, Atlas Shrug, but against what you said, uh, Carter, in saying that that's a little bit like a idealistic um, thinking that children need to be, you know, reason through everything first. Uh, you know, yep. uh, you said that objectivists are a little bit sort of idealistic about divorce and sort of like, just throw it away if you're not still into it or whatever. And I think that there's people who, who, who see that you've got to raise children to think for themselves. So they want to do it from like year from day one. Whereas, you know, there is definitely the model where you give a bunch of rules, you say this is the way to do things and you don't like brook any questioning until they insist on questioning you. And they say, why? And you're like, oh, now you're ready. Like start, now I can feed you reasons for doing the things that we do, which I was just telling you to do up to this point. I mean, yeah, I'm not against like, yeah, I'm not saying that you take your baby and try and explain to your baby why they need to, you know, eat the mushed peas or whatever it is. Like, no, you like you can ask. I've met, I've them, met but utilitarians kids, who think that, you know. Right, but kids will. It's not. Uh, it, kids actually will start questioning pretty early. <laughs> um, they will question pretty early, and so um, I don't. I don't think idealistic is actually a an argument like i know people like oh that's idealistic it's like i don't i don't even know what that means what like you don't think it could happen in reality like okay um but i'm not i'm not actually meaning you have to explain everything but what i mean is um you do have to explain when they ask uh and you can't use intimidation and you can't use force so yeah do you have some authority as a parent yeah obviously you do but your goal is to raise someone who's you know, coming to these conclusions himself. And I've used this example before. I'm going to use it now because we have new subscribers. But when my daughter was, I don't know, five or six, she didn't want to brush her teeth because kids don't want to brush their teeth. And uh, I could have just yelled, you can't have this, you can't do that. This is why you have to brush your teeth. I Googled rotten teeth and just showed her pictures. I'm like, this is what happens when you don't brush your teeth, right? Oh, like if she if she had the language, she'd have said, fuck. But like you could see it in her eyes, and she was like, "Ah, brush your teeth." And now, even to this day, she's eleven. If she like, 
she still is like, don't show me that picture of the bad teeth. It's pretty gross. Yeah, there's a reason we brush our teeth. It's not because dad says brush your teeth. Um, that's not the reason. So, anyway. True. And the other example you've brought up before Carter, I think, on a show several times is, but that doesn't mean when your kid's four and starts to run in the street, you don't just say, don't run in the street. Right. Like, <laughs> right. You, you grab them. They're going to die. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> you don't yeah. Explain I guess I think you should have confidence in your own sense of what's appropriate, inappropriate, right, wrong, that are, that are smart. And then when your kids start to push back, then you encourage that because they're actually think they're actually insisting on thinking for themselves. But I don't think parents need to go there and be like, how do I reason you into this instead of just being like, there's yeah. a way, there's a, there's a right answer here. Well, I think yeah, what normally happens, Philip, the thing that I'm pushing bad. back on is, is parents, sorry, the parents will say, parents will say, like, when a kid pushes back, a lot of parents will then, they don't have, they don't actually have a good reason or they're too lazy to think of the reason why. And so their response to that pushback is the opposite of what you're saying. The response is just like, cause I said so, or, you know, I'll ground you if you don't or whatever. And like, that's the wrong response. That does not teach them what you need to teach them. Yeah. So was it Tamara that was talking? Who was just talking before? Sorry. Yeah. I was just saying that, you know, yeah, that's it's I think that maybe when he was saying idealistic, I think maybe maybe what he was basically saying is that you can't always do that. You know, with your children, you, there are limitations to what you can do. It's just like kids want to hold your hand. You have to, like, say, I'm going to hold your hand instead when you cross the street. And because, right. you know, they can argue with you about it. You're like, because I'm the one who's going to hold your hand. Because you can let go. I won't let go, you know. But that's they, a good reason. Yeah, that is a good reason. But, you know, I mean, I think that sometimes as a parent, like, I think you can come to the end of it after they've wired you like three times in a row and you just say, because, you know what I mean? You don't um, always. Yeah. I've never done that. Always so maybe. <laughs> I've never, ever done that. That was the rule that I laid down for myself, which was, I will never say because I said so. And well, I'll never I'm not, not answer saying, why. Well, that's fine. I mean, you don't have to say those words, but I don't think that you have to continue like having an argument with your child to explain it to him after you've explained it several times is all. I think that that's, you know, you can't, you don't always have to continue on if they just want to be argumentative, but that's, that's a whole nother subject. Though. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think a lot of the times what happens is if you try and, if you raise kids under a little bit of authority and then they push back and then you switch it's it's hard right because um their kids are always trying to challenge what it is that you're doing like they're always trying to see what they can get away with that's part of being a kid and it's rational like they're trying to figure out how the world works what can i do you know will mom like what will mom do can i get away with this like that just makes that just makes sense as i understand why kids do that but uh, mm -hmm. i don't know off topic, I had a question about a part of the book. That's actually um, on topic. Well, off this specific topic, <laughs> I guess. Um, they, the, there was a part in the book where, had, like, where, where Rand had written, uh, it was the most feminine of all aspects, look of the look of being chained. Uh, so she, and she like talked about it a couple of times. It was like the bracelets. And then she talked about like Dagny having that. And it was like mm. a chain and this, and I thought it was kind of weird. Like, is that, a, is that a common trope of like femininity of being chained? Or was that like something that Rand thought personally, or was that reading just too much into it? Cause it was just 
weird, but and like it kept it came up a couple times. It's a yeah. she, she wants personal, to be dominated. Yeah, it's a personal thing that she. So this is one of the areas that I depart with Rand on, um, and uh, I think I've said this before on the show, but Nathaniel Brandon mentioned this to me once. He said she doesn't. You have to remember that Rand didn't understand. She said she didn't understand psychology, and you should believe her. Right. Um, she. Uh, she took the physical, biological act of sex as a metaphor for the relationship between men and women generally. Um, and so uh, she viewed this because the female is being penetrated and the male is penetrating. This is a dominance hierarchy. And she has she's written she wrote a whole article about how she would never vote for a woman president because no rational woman would ever want to be above men um and like all men so she i think this is largely driven by her own sexual outlook which i think everyone's entitled to their own sexual outlook if that's how she wants to be that's fine but uh she used it to i believe she used it to rationalize broader uh statements about men and women generally that said, uh, we kind of need a little bit more of that because now we're saying that there's literally no biological difference between men and women. So someone has to like, there are actually differences and they do exist. So I, she just went a little bit, you know, she, she used it. She used her own feelings to justify, I think, more than was justifiable philosophically. Yeah, it kind of just seemed like, <laughs> I don't know, but we talked about like projection on the show, like you've talked about projection from people and that just seemed to be a little bit from her or like, this is how women feel about this. Like, no, I think that's how you feel about that. Right, right. <laughs> I thought of that too. Like I read this and always thought that she had a little bit of a problem the kind of way I... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, look I at Fountainhead. But she doesn't really understand. I didn't read Fountainhead. Actually... Oh, Atlas Shrugged is the only fiction book I've ever read, and that was her last one. She said that's the ultimate fiction. That was the one I read first. Uh, and I bought it when that. I bought this one, and I'm going to read it. Which one? Laura? I bought uh, The Fountainhead when I bought Atlas Shrugged just because I'd heard about it a lot, and I've never read it. So I'm going to yeah. try it. It's good. The Fountainhead to me was more about what it means to be an individual, and this is more of an integrated, I don't know, a, a larger philosophy. Yeah, this is a much wider theme. Uh, I, I, I can't get away from uh, Rand's characterization of women and sexuality and every sex scene and every sort of thing. There's this, uh, she stresses that he didn't need her permission. You know, he could just take, mm -hmm. he, he owned yeah. her, you know, possession and all this stuff. And I, I honestly have to say, I found it refreshing. Obviously, it might be difficult if, you're, if somebody's like, here, defend Rand's position, you know, sort of like, oh, I don't know what to say to make this seem like a, a generally acceptable doctrine. But it's so much more direct and like from her own experience than like what you get. Like, I mean, I was, went to college in the 90s and you know, what feminism did to sort of like clear the pitch on like what women want and all this stuff. It's always ideological you know yeah the, the ideas of what women want are ideologically driven and, and any idea that a woman wants to be dominated or raped or you know rape fantasy or fought over by men uh wants to see men bloody each other to like get to her you know oh no we won't don't want any of that and, and that's not true it's like 
I've definitely met some women who say things like that, you know. So I just thought that her treatment of it is direct and, yeah, based in her own experience. So I, I think there's more to think through in her treatment of and the uh, characterization of women and, and their drives than there is in your average like, contemporary book where it's always like polished motive. So like this is good, like PR, a PR polishing of what, what they do, what they do. Uh, at the risk of being cancelled, uh, the uh, the um, it is true that in ancient times um, women were physically dependent on men when they had children, so uh, right. there may true. be you know echoes of that in our deepest psychology and so on. So maybe that's kind of what she's getting at. Yeah, I think so. That's why I say like even though I don't agree with her philosophical conclusions, I do think we need a little bit of that kind of gender realism of like there are actually differences on average and you know uh i don't think Here, here's an example of miseducation coming sorry, sorry no go ahead uh miseducation you know in, in in feminist terms the idea of like consent 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 uh i came out of college like with definitely the idea that like you got to always just like make sure that like there's a respectful thing going on. And I'm not saying obviously that you want to be disrespectful. That's not the opposite. But the idea that no one would want you to like take charge of a situation, make a move when things obviously when there's a mutuality of feeling, it all depends on people actually reading each other right. But if you want to be in a situation right, you know, do you ask permission first before you kiss a girl or do you make a move? My experience tells me that you know, the idea to ask permission and make sure that everything's okay first is just spoils it, you know, and it really does take away from the, whatever this is that goes on with the drama of sexuality involves a certain amount of, you know, risk, aggression, you know, things that are not polished. Yeah, absolutely. And so, someone in chat just said, perhaps none of the hosts are familiar with the kink community. I was thinking about bringing the kink community up actually because of this. Um, <laughs> Fifty if Shades look- of Grey. Well, no, that's yeah. that's not the kink community. Oh, that's just a bad book. Um, but I mean, the kink community, what they do is they take that, they solve the problem that you're talking about, Philip, by taking all that consent and front loading it with like, th- this is like, there's a, there's consent discussion at the very beginning with, vi- they're very, like, they're, the kink community is almost, uh, OCD, like they're very like rule based. They're very, very rule based. Um, they get, have all the rules. And then within those boundaries, once the boundaries are very clearly defined, there is a lot of power dynamic play. And obviously in the kink community, and there is a lot of the power dynamic play, exactly what Rand is talking about. There are a lot of women who that's exactly what they want. Um, and I mean, I think rape fantasies are actually quite popular if you look at Google search. So uh, not all women, but um, yeah. And there are echoes of that in the larger theme of the book that um, the whole book is about this dynamic of domination and submission. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something I find interesting. I read some of the various commentaries on the book and some of the feminists were like, it's really great that you have an independent woman who controls her sexuality and she's a CEO and nobody gives her bunk for it. Now, on the other hand, they're bashing the pseudo rape scene with Hank Reardon, even though it's consultation or, and having uh, Franco de Cagno slapping her. I was like, 
you can't complain about that in a society where Fifty Shades of Grey was both a best-selling book and they made several movies off of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, I mean... The other thing with the Francisco slapping her, which makes the initiation of force thing a little bit sticky, right? I thought that too. Um, I don't think she viewed it as the initiation of force, and I don't think, and I think he knew that. I don't want to like make psychological excuses, but they knew each other well enough that she she wanted to be punished for like she, that was a fine thing to do. Um, now. I guess she could have afterwards said that was the initiation of force. How dare you? And like, I would be wrong, but she didn't. Um, so I'm going to assume that since Dagny was strong enough to stick up for herself and she didn't, that there was subtext that made that consensual. Mm -hmm. Which I maybe it's a stretch. I don't know. Maybe it was just a really, he was giving a really strong message. Like she said something evil and, right. and he wanted to make it very clear that he disagreed and that was evil. Yes. The narration talked about that too, though, like about her, like, oh, she could have gone and, and, and told someone about it, though, but, but she kept it private because that was just like something between the two of them. So like in Dagny's eyes, that was something, I don't know, personal and okay. Right. I, I thought Dagny realized he was right in the end. Right. Well, and she wanted to be held to the high standards. Like, his reaction was an indication of uh, what he thought of her and um, how what the, and the high standards that he expected from her. And when she was slapped, I think she realized that is what I want. Like, those are the standards I want to live by. That is like that was the right reaction. I would have slapped myself. Right. Like that's that's the right thing. Um, but. Someone in chat says, just like when Danconia didn't respond to Reardon's slap across the face. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're also, there's also some, uh, there's also some context here, like, historically, he didn't break her arm. Reardon didn't, like, put him in a sleeper hold, right? It was a slap across the face as a gesture that wasn't necessarily viewed as... Uh, as bad as we might be like today, any like someone pushes you, you can charge them for assault, right? Um, but back then, I don't think that's really how. Like that wasn't considered assault, right? Yeah, you see it in a lot of older shows. Like that was you know, a common thing to do. I guess. Right. I mean, it's unacceptable to our standards. Our standards have changed, so, but I still found it really weird to read that. Yeah. We still have the expression, that's just a slap in the face, you know. Right. Slap on the hand. It, it's well, kind which, of which means it's humiliating. It doesn't mean uh, I, my arm is broken or I wound up in hospital. It's a humiliation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like the Muslim societies that throw a shoe at your head or whatever. It's like it's not intended to hurt you. It's just to, it's like humiliating to have the shoe on your head, right? It's like that's what it is. It's a yeah. It's, it's a, and Manu was talking like about when, this. Uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, isn't that why, like, if you really want to humiliate a guy instead of punching him, you slap him across the face? I've read that. 
probably is it's it's more like i mean if you're making a point of trying to you know humiliate them that's what you do is you slap them instead of punch them because I, mean, I don't know maybe that's maybe that's kind of like treating them like a girl maybe that's a trope maybe you're oh maybe like a girl you know instead of punching him like a dude i don't i don't know i hadn't thought of that but maybe you you're right <laughs> yeah yeah. I still have a problem with that. You know, it's physical. What what they did was a physical thing. Now she is reasonable enough to understand um, that she, um, you know, she went. She she thought something wrong. It should be enough for him to just to say it to her, and she would understand because she's smart. Doesn't take a slap on her face. I mean, words are enough to do that. Yeah, and I think I think today that scene would be more inappropriate than it was at the time. Like I think sure. there has been some there's been some cultural changes and like Absolutely. nowadays you wouldn't do that. Um so yeah, I I agree. I'm I'm okay in a society where we don't slap each other and we just use harsh words. I think that's that's preferable. Yeah. Any last words? We were almost two hours. Does anyone have any other comments they want to make on the book or any anything else that needs to be shared? I did like it mentioned uh, something about two plus two equals four in there specifically. So yes, that was nice. George <laughs> Orwell. Orwell predates this, I assume, right? Yeah, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had one uh, one thing I want to mention. My uh, girlfriend. Um, we watched the movie. The book is uh, longer than she would read, and she had never heard of it or heard of Ayn Rand. Anyway, we watched the movie about a month ago, um, and it's the third or fourth time I've seen the three-part series. Um, but it really struck her, and I, was, I wasn't I was sure what she would think, um, but it, like, struck her, like, chilling. Like, she kept pausing and talking. Um, some people know, like, Laura, uh, my girlfriend's from South Africa. She born and raised there, lived there until she was 33. So it, it was t- entirely personal to her. Like she's John Galt. Like she was one of the ones that abandoned South Africa about 10 years after Mandela took over. And so she kept hitting pause and saying, yeah. And then she would tell me a story about what was going on in Cape Town or Johannesburg, you know, in the nineties. Um, and and she, that was very interesting. And she saw like so many parallels. Hmm. Yeah. INC is a Marxist party. A lot of people don't realize that. Wait, say that again, Stephen. The ANC uh, was Marxist, and they're still yeah, running that. South oh, Africa. Yeah, Mandela was a Marxist, hardcore. Yeah. And a terrorist, but we can yeah. talk about that. His wife, terribly also, I mean, terribly. Like, she did horrific things, even yeah. when she was in prison. Yeah. Yeah. We need to finish with a Carter rant that always puts me in a good mood. I was going to say, I don't know. That was like a, now I'm thinking of, uh, uh, what are they, the tire necklaces in South Africa. I don't know. This is, I'm, I'm down now for that. That, that was, that was a, a bummer. Um, I was thinking one thing about Eddie Willers. Yeah. So what is the point of, well, not what the point, but what, what are your thoughts on Eddie Willers or what's the point of his role in the, in the, book i mean he's always a follower he's like the right hand of dagny throughout the entire book and then at the end is it almost like he's transforming into her when she leaves i don't i don't know if he's transforming into her but i think the point of eddie willers is, 
Yeah, I I think the point of Eddie Willers is that good people die. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think it's that it's that look, good people die in this. This is like he's a good person. He, um, you know, he he was. I mean, he wasn't a slouch either. Like he was the her assistant. He, that's not a menial job. Like the guy was above, definitely an above average IQ, productive guy. Like he wouldn't have had the job he had if he wasn't, you know, pretty damn good. Um, so. I think it's a I, I I think she wanted to show that like look yeah there's good people who die at the end. there's there's real because cons- otherwise there wouldn't have been a lot of consequences for people that we liked in fact you know if you wanted to be more realistic you could argue that someone better from the Gulch should have died like something should have happened where there's an actual cost because they got away with very little downside at least the heroes did we are as someone mentioned we are left to see that like society at large doesn't get away with it even the good people are, are likely to have uh consequences but um i think eddie willers was just a, a a way to her for her to like show us that yeah good good people are still gonna die yeah what i saw the only the thing i saw at the end with him was that when he's on the on the comet at the end, uh, he's the only one who stays at the end. But he's like trying. He's he he sort of gets that drive that he didn't have before. Before he was always like, a, he was a good guy, but he was sort of a follower, right? He was always following or having somebody tell him what to do. And then at the end, he's the one who's sort of telling the engineer and everybody, trying to figure out a way to solve solve the problem. And sort of he's so in that sense is where I'm seeing him maybe like turning a little bit into her, not completely because he's not with them in in Gulf's Gulch. But right. you know, yeah. it was I wonder if he's an example of he got crushed because he didn't shrug. He's trying to hold up the system even as it's pressing down, and he—they're showing even if you're good, even if you're a hard worker, mm-hmm. you can't. You can, if it's falling apart, you're going to get crushed if you stay. You have to leave if you want to survive. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I think Eddie Willers is an example of one type of person. So they said he doesn't have the mind of Hank Reardon, the, the way he put it, the way Francisco puts it. But he's he recognizes good and evil. He recognizes uh, what to do. He's a hard worker. He sees Dagny. He sees Hank. He sees Ellis. He sees Wyatt. their value. Mm-hmm. He recognizes their value. So he's like kind of an in between person. So yeah, he's not a genius. He can't create Reardon metal, but he's he's on the good side so i think that's rand's example of a large number of people mm-hmm. and there's nothing there's nothing bad about it. like he's definitely good he's not morally ambiguous he's just yeah. uh it's just his competence level isn't the the very high end of the Pareto distribution right he's not he's not a reardon but he's he's there's no indication in the book that he's like oh no he was a good guy yeah, but he loved he loved Dagny the entire yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. He never even said anything. I mean, he was like very. Uh, what's the word? Excuse uh, me. You know what I'm saying? He he wasn't assertive, right? He was sort of of sort of following, and he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything about it. Right. So he lost at the end, like you said, right? He's one of the good guys. Didn't take as much initiative, or didn't. You know, he, he, he just waited death, till the end. And his death might have been because he accidentally talked to being helpful to the state agents and yeah. giving them the information they needed to hurt Dagny and end it 
in consequence, Reardon. Mm -hmm. True. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, but, I mean, the big, yeah. go ahead. Uh, just one of the big things I took away was about the rhetoric of the social good. The people saying, like, don't you care about the social good? And nobody wants to say, no, I don't care about that. Right. But the opposite of like caring about the social good is not being antisocial. And I think that's like where they try to trap you. Oh, if you're not the social good, well, then you're some sort of antisocial actor. But the opposite of like, whatever, there's, a, there's something in the middle of those two, which is having a specificity of purpose and just being like, I'm trying to do this, not caring about the larger thing that goes on without me. Uh, so at one point, very early in the book, Jackie uh, says, I'm not in the business to give chances on my railroad. And uh, James says to her, that's an extremely narrow view, it seems to me. But like, if you don't keep your eye on the ball of doing what you're trying to actually do, assuming that there's a good involved you're trying to accomplish, then you will, if you take your eye off the ball to start caring about the social good, you will fail to accomplish your purpose. So when people say, like, don't you care about the social good? It's like, I need to stick to doing what I'm trying to get done, which I know to be a good, and everything else is kind of like, I don't know what, take care of itself. Yeah. Well, and this is this is articulated in the, the oath, right? Because Rand, Rand viewed the one of the primary problems with society is that people were, there were two types of people, both of them are wrong. People who wanted to be sacrificial, like wanted to be sacrificed for something and people who wanted to do the sacrificing. Um, and the oath was her attempt to describe that, hey, this is a false dichotomy. Those aren't the only two alternatives. You actually can do no sacrificing uh, and sacrifice no, like you can sacrifice no one and not be sacrificed yourself. That's the moral way to live. Um, but yeah, uh, I guess it's an uncommon outlook. I, I really loved Jim Taggart because uh, I love to hate him, I guess I'll say that because I loved how awful he was the whole time. And I mentioned this to you, Carter, I think, but I don't know if anyone else has ever watched the adult cartoon Rick and Morty, but in the, since I listened to the audiobook, the way that the the narrator um, Scott Brick had voiced him, it reminded me of the dad in Rick, Rick and Morty because he's just like the whiniest guy and he just can't do anything for himself and he's just so pathetic. But he's just like, no, but I'm but I'm but I'm the dad. I need to do this. and I loved it. So I just love listening to him because he was just like, man, you suck. You suck so hard. <laughs> I've never seen Rick and Morty, but now I have to. Yeah. Oh, it's a good show. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, I think we've been over two hours. I think we should probably end it at this point. Um, but uh, thanks everyone for joining. Um, yeah, you guys are great. And do you know uh, what we're going to read next time? We don't, but what we do know is mm -hmm. we're going to pick two books next time because someone suggested that we pick books a month in advance so people can like have extra time so they kind of know what's coming up. So we need to pick a fiction book and a nonfiction book. Nonfiction next, because we kind of like to alternate and probably then a fiction after. So if you've got uh, suggestions, send them to me or throw them in chat if you're in chat right now or whatever, and Ninja Kitty will try and grab them. But, uh, and someone says, please, something short. Yeah, I think we need a break after this one. <laughs> this have, you, have, you heard, have you heard the book? Because we talk a lot about empathy and how that can be misused. Have you heard the book Against Empathy? You know what I'm talking um, I've about? I've heard of it. I have never read it. Never it's pretty read. short. It's okay. not for long. And it okay. might be interesting to talk about because there is, 
I mean, it's an interesting topic of discussion that I have with my friends sometimes because I'm actually a very empathetic person, but I also have a lot of rational thought. And, you know, it's, you know, you can, empathy can, can be, and it is being used right now as like a tool to manipulate people really bad. And people need to learn how there, there are lines, you know, like you said the other day, if you give a heroin addict, you know, a shot of heroin because they're jonesing, is that really empathetic? Are you really caring about them? Is that really the best thing for them? You know, yeah. so that's that. It might be an interesting choice, and it's short. That might be a good one because I do have I do have a problem with the glorification of emotions. Like, oh, you need empathy, and it's like, no. I mean, it's like I've said before, it's necessary but not sufficient. Like, it's what you do with your emotions that matter, right? It's what and, you do. You with know, them. it's, it's good it's to be that way with your friends, but should we legislate that way? Right. <laughs> Probably not. Um, Right. And and in Ayn Rand's view, it's not really empathy with your friends. It's it's a trade. She would That's consider true. that a trade. Yeah, yeah. But she doesn't deny emotions, right? No. Um, no. Yeah. Someone wants human action. <laughs> that is the Atlas Shrugged of nonfiction. It's the it's one of the best books ever. But that's like you need time. That's a tough one. That's what harder that one? than Atlas Shrugged to get through, actually. What were you talking about? What did you say? Human action. Someone's recommending Human Action in Book Club, which is a great book. Uh, in fact, you could read Human Action and you wouldn't really have to read and probably you'd come to the same conclusions, I would imagine, but um, maybe not. I'm not sure. All right. Uh, thank you, everyone. Um, thank you. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you. You yeah, guys have a good day. All right. You too. Thanks, everyone, in chat. And we will see you uh, mon Monday. We'll see you Monday. Thanks for watching. If you're new to the channel, we have a deep content library that includes interviews with everyone from Mike Cernovich to Megan Murphy, so go check it out. If you'd like to see more, please consider supporting the show by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on all the major social media platforms, at least for now, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space chat on Telegram. See you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production has not been authorized by the Cathedral. Pay no attention to it. For your protection, the following co-conspirators have been unpersoned and marked for cancellation. Please avoid any contact with these individuals. The science is settled. There is a 95.7% chance that these are all rushing bots. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. It is for your own good that small businesses must all be destroyed.
computer voice Curtis. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.